You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 198. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Our Take segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We are happy to be back with you again this week, just on Brennan's day of love, in his month of love. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, I will answer a listener question on Aritzia, symbol ATZ on the TSX, a company which clients should be very familiar with. This has been one of our top Canadian retail recommendations since 2019. In a tough retail environment, it has performed very well. Aritzia is a fashion-forward, innovative retailer targeting women ages 15 to 45. The company operates over 100 stores across Canada and into the U.S., in addition to an established e-commerce platform. A listener asks if the recent pullback makes it an attractive buying opportunity. In the wake of what was a pretty entertaining Super Bowl this past weekend, Brennan takes a look at some strange investor projections based on the outcome of the big game itself. Brennan will also touch on the effective dividend yield of a stock, answering a listener question in that regard. Aaron will answer a listener question on the inverse relationship of bond prices to bond yields and how that can impact investing in various bond products. Finally, in our Your Stock, or sorry, in our Stars and Dogs segment, Brett ranks Lyft his dog of the week after the second largest ride-sharing service provider in the U.S. and Canada saw its share price collapse 36% last Friday. It reported poor quarterly numbers, which sent the stock lower. Brett's star of the week is one of our top-ranked U.S. stocks, Microsoft Corporation, symbol MSFT on the NASDAQ. The giant has jumped over 13% year-to-date. Brett will let you know why. So let's get to the show. How are you guys doing? Doing Recovered well. from our week at the Outlook, Brennan ringing in the bell, and my uh, I think my arm with a <laughs> Heineken in it helped ring in the bell, too. That was impressive. Yeah, Brett will pull somehow. that up. It's, it's <laughs> hilarious seeing your your beer kind of brennan is famous now we should yeah uh, brennan is famous his head show that on the, on the podcast oh of course we're showing it we'll pull it up they're, they're watching it right was, now uh, blocking you the whole time though hey yep. it was getting in your yep. way and you know and i yeah. sent that to my i sent the video to my friends and my one buddy mm-hmm. ozzy he was like wow it sucks to be short doesn't it brennan yeah i, I don't made, i should have moved to the it. front but you know it's just people getting right in front of your way get right? you a and stool yeah, maybe should have just shoved that guy out of the way. <laughs> my, my parents, though, it <laughs> like was awesome. got punched uh, him, low, 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 bridged him, and just went in there. Low blow. On, nobody sees it. <laughs> no. On Wednesday, though, when uh, it actually aired on on uh, BNN Bloomberg, um, my parents were just absolutely losing it. They sent me a video of it, and you know they were just laughing. There, should we tell people is. what we're talking about? Did we even say that? We yes. we rang in the close or opening bell. I don't know on if we TSX ran it in last but week. We Just me and Brennan. Present. And my beer. <laughs> present when the bell rang. 
Yeah. Yes. It was true. This is true. It was us that rang it in only. Yeah. Just stop spoiling it for us. All right. <laughs> okay. So do we want to, do we want to get into uh, Brett? Uh, this is in honor of the Super Bowl, which um, the Chiefs won over the weekend. Uh, you know, an exciting game overall. I didn't. I didn't love the end, not because of the call. I mean, things that happened. I'm sure if you're in Philadelphia, you're not happy about that call. But um, I just don't like running out a game and uh, kind of killing the uh, suspense. I know that's the way you know the NFL is. But you run out a game with two minutes left. And but you don't have to like second. it, though, right? I don't have to like it. I I, I would like to see uh, you know it, not be able to run out the game that fast with the four downs and just. Uh, have the chance for Philadelphia, the Eagles, to have a comeback. That would be great. Maybe give them at least a minute. I mean, time is what it is, but I just don't like being able to run out without nothing really happening on the field. But, you know, it is yes. strategy, and I get it. Yes. So um, you, you want to talk about that. Uh, yeah. Some people make these predic- predictions going forward based on uh, the big game, who wins the AFC winning or Yes. The NFC, right? There's uh, some pr- exactly. big, so long-standing projections there. You're going to go through that because this is I really will go key to where that. the markets go going forward, right, Brennan? Thank you. Yes, yes, sure key. Um, but yeah, the, the game was good, you know, just uh, dovetailing on what you said. And as well, you know, Rihanna was uh, the halftime show. So, you know, it kind of goes in relation to my month and day of love. So, you know, uh, just, just bringing it full circle there. Anyways, anyways, uh, so yes, no one in Super Bowl fashion, <laughs> I thought that I would bring up this post from Yahoo Finance's Instagram, which states, Invest- investors should hope the Philadelphia Eagles crush the Kansas City Chiefs if they want to see stocks go up, as historically, the S&P 500 has outsized gains when an NFC team wins, and returns are even higher when the game is a blowout, regardless of which team wins. So considering the Kansas City Chiefs, an AFC team, won the Super Bowl on Sunday by only a narrow margin of one field goal, does it mean we should expect the market to perform poorly? Of course not. Of course not. However, it reminded me of the Peter Lynch book that I am slowly but surely reading uh, when he says that in hindsight, studying history and philosophy was much better preparation for the stock market than, say, studying statistics. Investing in stocks is an art, not a science, and people who've been trained to rigidly quantify everything have a big disadvantage. And he goes on, he uses an example of how centuries passed when people heard a rooster crow, they decided that it was the crowing that caused the sun to rise. And Peter goes on to reference this to Wall Street saying that experts confuse cause and effect in offering some reason why the stock market goes up. And his writing from 1989 relates directly to this post as he uses a certain conference winning the Super Bowl as one of the various nonsense indicators. Now, it may be fun to contemplate that a football game can somehow predict stock market returns, but to the intelligent investor, an article and indicator like this is just noise. The key is to focus on what you know, buying an array of quality businesses. So yeah, I just thought that I'd bring it up on the podcast. It was kind of funny when I saw it. And uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, funny reading that book and seeing Peter Lynch bring it up, the, this exact thing that I saw on Instagram the other day and mocking it, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the market's going to perform poorly now, is what you're saying. 
That's clearly that not what I'm that's saying. That's a lock. Take it to the bank. <laughs> I've heard about this done. example a couple times before too. And uh, it's, it's, you know, basically what you're doing is you're, you're comparing a bunch of data and you're trying to find a correlation. Like if one thing happens, does another thing happen as well? So, you know, certain team wins the Super Bowl, um, you know, does that cause something else to happen? And the thing is, is that there's a lot of correlations out there that are not necessarily related to each other, right? Like they just, yeah. a lot of times they will happen just based on pure, you know, happenstance, just luck. Um, I mean, if you think of all the possible relationships that exist between things happening in the world, of course, you're going to find examples where there's a high correlation between two things happening that are just completely unrelated. So that's called fa false correlation. And in, in statistics, it said that most correlations that you find are false, right? So that's why things like torturing a data set, like just, you know, doing whatever you can to the data set, transforming the data, checking every correlation just to find something is like a really bad way to go about research. Like there should be some theoretical connection between yeah. two things happening. And also just because things are correlated doesn't mean that one causes the other. They could be caused by something else or, or it could just be, you know, pure pure luck. But uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure where we would find the, um, the theoretical link between these two things, except you could say that if this information is well known, um, it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it could actually change people's behavior. Um, mm -hmm. But I would think that that would happen quickly after that information became available. Whereas what this is saying, it's, um, it's the annual return that it's predicting. Is that correct, Brendan? Uh, yes, correct. Correct. The annual return. Yeah. And just referencing back to Peter so, Lynch, you know, he goes on to say some of these nonsense indicators such as like hemlines for pants, you know, increasing, causing the stock market to go up. Yeah, like there's, there's been like rate. research reports put together to prove this point where it's like eating chocolate will make you more likely to be a serial killer. Like it's easy to find <laughs> if you're looking for them fake correlations. Uh -oh. But say again, so what is it that causes like what team... Yeah, winning. so it's it's a team from the N or the. Uh, well, I mean, the I mean, this one is about as ridiculous as it gets. Yeah. NFC versus AFC. Like, I mean, come on. Like, there there would be no, there'd be absolutely no. I mean, like Aaron said, there needs to be some so kind of relationship it's, it's, between it's, the data it's, points. It's, it's a division. One league basically. versus okay, another team. league. One league versus the other, and when the one league wins, the market does well that year. Yes, and then so statistically, does that league usually win? Or is it usually closer to 50-50? This I don't know. This okay. I don't know. Ryan, Brennan, do some research for God's yeah. sake before you. Because I mean that'd be something to look at. Because this is, most this years, is the main issue. In most years, the stock market down. goes up. So if mo if in most years that other team that other league yeah. also wins, then you're probably going to see a relationship That's, there, even yeah. though one has nothing to do with the other. They're just. It's crazy that we actually require a relationship between the data points to actually have any type of impact at all. But anyway, yeah, I mean, in this case, like there's clear, there's not any relationship here. It's just, it's a fun little data point yeah. that yeah. Brandon brought up that he thinks is actually a lock, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, just, have you simple, like... right? So that's okay. Brandon's no, it's good. It's good. There's yeah, many of these, and it relates to the book you're reading right now. Clearly, yes. very slowly because How, how's that book going? You <laughs> two years. When are we gonna Good. get? A, when are we gonna Quite. get the summary? Um, yeah. well, a couple years, three from, years now. from now. A couple, couple years, years from now. You know, we'll we'll see.
We'll Brennan's see. hiding all the information. Yeah, from I'm about like maybe it's, 75 pages through. So we're it's a picture far, book but... too. That's the problem. <laughs> there are some pictures of stock charts, a lot and, of uh, pictures. Oh. and graphs and tables. So you know, it's his favorite. It's quite the fun yeah. read. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so d- did you want to answer? Hit the mailbag first, Brennan, and answer uh, the question on uh, what was your question? <laughs> sure. Effective dividend yield, right? Yes, exactly. So I'm just going to share my screen again here as I pull up. Yeah, we've been talking about this lately. Uh, We were just at uh, the World Outlook Conference and people who have bought in stocks that have either implemented a dividend or increased that dividend over the last uh, several years uh, and bought the stock at a lower price. What does this do to your yield? And and we always talk about and reference the effective dividend yield. And then somebody said, what the heck are you talking about when you say effective dividend yield? So Brennan had to look it up and see what the hell he was talking about. Now he's going to tell you what the hell he's been talking about. Yeah, I had to learn what I was talking dividend. about. And then, yeah, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, yes, we have referenced effective dividend yield a few times on the podcast. Um, but I did receive a question from a listener asking us to break down what the effective dividend yield of a stock is and how an investor would calculate their own effective dividend yield on a stock in their own portfolio. Now, this will be review for most podcast listeners, but first we need to describe what the current dividend yield on a stock is and how to calculate it. So the current dividend yield on a stock is what what percentage return in the form of cash dividends an investor would receive when purchasing a dividend yield yielding stock at the current market price. And we usually quantify dividend yields in annual terms for comparison purposes, so just keep this in mind. So using a real-world example on Dynacor, the current dividend yield on the business is about 3.9% because the stock currently trades at $3.04 and pays a monthly dividend of $0.01. So considering Dynacor is expected to pay us about $0.12 in dividends over the next year, the dividend yield on Dynacor is the $0.12 divided by the $3.04, the current price, which equals 3.94%. Now, the effective dividend yield, on the other hand, is the percentage return in the form of cash dividends an investor would receive based on the initial purchase price that they paid. So this is the defining difference where uh, normal or current dividend yields are based off of the current share price, whereas the effective yield is based off of the price we actually purchased the stock for. And the effective dividend yield becomes ever more important to focus on for dividend growth stocks as the price one pays for the stock never changes but the dividend increases, amplifying your effective dividend yield earned. Now, for example, I put together this uh, little table here. Um, I personally purchased Dynacor at $1.80 on July of 2019 when it paid a current dividend yield of about 2.2%. But since then, the company has increased the annual dividend from about $0.04 per share to $0.12 per share. So rather than calculating the $0.12 divided by the current market price, I would simply take the current uh, dividend of 12 cents divided by the actual price that I paid for the stock or for the share of the stock to get my effective yield. And thus, if we take the 12 cents divided by the $1.80, which is where I purchased the stock at, my effective yield that I earn on Dynacor every year is about 6.7%, much higher than the current dividend yield of 2.2% when I initially purchased the stock. And that's because, you know, we've seen the company increase its dividends over time. So that's really, you know, a a big takeaway here is 
um, you know, it, it really, you, you want to calculate your effective yield if you are in a dividend growth stock, because that price that you paid to initially buy the stock stays the same, but those dividends that you earn each year uh, are growing and increasing your actual effective yield. Bada boom, bada yeah, boom. and then the flip side to that is that, you know, there's also the opportunity cost, right? So when you're looking at current yield, you're, you're comparing, you know, should I stay in this company at a yield of say 3.94% or should I buy something else? Cause you can take that capital appreciation that the share price has moved up. You can take that extra capital theoretically, then you can move that over into into another stock that is paying, you know, a different yield. So there's opportunity costs. I mean, if you're looking at opportunity cost, that's when current yield is more, is more relevant when you're looking at, you know, your own returns, that's when effective yield is more relevant. But of course, even, you know, when talking about moving the capital to another stock, that doesn't that doesn't um, take into account any any tax implications there too. So it can get a little more complicated, for sure. Yeah, what good breakdown. So in, in the case of a company like Brookfield, like the effective yield at this point would be getting close to like you know thirty percent likely, right? Like uh, because of the dividend yields. Or I believe I calculated. Yeah, it was around twenty five percent or something like that. Not yeah, so yeah. I mean, we recommended it in twenty. 11 and yeah you'd basically on so on every year on the dividend was yeah yeah so every capital that every dollar of capital that was invested back then would be getting probably about a 25 percent yield right now right? but yeah. but the stock is yielding at the current price the stock is yielding about four percent like 4.2 percent yeah. so if i'm comparing this to another investment deciding should i keep my money in in brookfield infrastructure should i move somewhere else then the current yield becomes relevant if I'm looking at, you know, how well I've done over the past uh, 11 years or so um, than the effective yield. So the point being, you can look at both, right? Yep. Yeah, yep, for sure. Certainly. Now, Aaron, do you want to take a look at uh, the question from a listener <clears throat> on the inverse relationship of bond prices to bond yields? I believe that was the question, was it not? Yes, yes. Something so we, in that respect. we received a question from one of our listeners, um, saying that he, he would just like a breakdown on, on, you know, why bond prices would decline when interest rate, interest rates rise. Cause like a lot of people just, you know, looking at it quickly would think like, well, aren't higher interest rates better for bonds, but not for existing bonds. And, um, you know, this is something that, uh, I think is important for bond investors to at least get a bit of a, a, a grasp on. Um, last week, I think it was, I did a talk on the yield curve and then Brennan just blasted me. He basically said that, it, you know, my charts, Sorry. my graphs, they were too, too confusing. So then he pulled up some Rightfully fancy so. yeah. data visualizations and animations and, you know, but it got me to thinking, I'm, I'm glad that he did. So what I did is, is essentially to um, illustrate this point is on the weekend, I used my coding skills and built a little app that is going to help us. Let's see here. That is going to help us visualize how um, changing interest rates will affect bond prices, and also changing um, years to maturity as well. Right. Okay. So, say you're going to buy a bond, right? Say you bought a bond uh, a year ago, right? Um, and it was a ten-year, so ten-year government bond, and it was yielding two percent. So we're going to put two in here for two percent. So you got your bond here, right? You for say it's a $100 bond, just as an example here, 2% interest rate. Um, so that means that for every $100 that 
that you invested, you're going to be getting annualized interest payments of, of $2, right? And these are typically semi-annual, so it's going to get paid twice per year, but annualized $2. And that's what you get. Um, and this interest payment is fixed over the life of the bond, which in this case is, is 10 years. So no matter what happens, um, you're going to get that 2% annualized per year over the 10 years, and then you're going to get your $100 return at the end of 10 years. Um, but then, you know, something happens, interest rates rise, um, maybe they rise up to 4%, right? And then you look at your bond, it's like, oh, my bond was worth $100 before, now it's worth $84. And so the question is, well, why, why did my bond decline in value? Um, and the reason for that is that, yes, interest rates rose, they doubled, in fact, from 2 to 4%. But bonds are, are, are a fixed income investment. So you're still on the bond that you purchased, you're still just getting that 2% annualized interest payment every year, right? So if you're just going to hold that bond, you could argue that it, it's not really that relevant, but maybe you're in a situation where you want to sell the bond and you, you can't redeem it, right? Because it's 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 that bond is going to exist. Like the, the, the person who issued the bond or the, the government that issued the bond isn't going to redeem it, but there is a liquid market for most government bonds, right? So you could take it to the market, you'd be like, you know, I actually need the money, I wanna sell this. Now your bond that you bought at a 2% interest rate that is paying $2 annualized per year has to compete with other bonds that are issued at 4% and are gonna be paying $4 annualized per year, right? So in order for you to basically incentivize somebody to buy that bond, you need to sell it at a lower price so that they can get that same yield, right? So the way that, that this is calculated, the change in um, a bond price based on interest rates, it's, it can be a fairly uh, complicated equation. It's, it's essentially, it's called duration. Um, and I'm not gonna get too much into duration, but it's duration basically tells you, you know, how much um, your bond is expected to decline in price for every 1% change in interest rates. Um, so what I did here is I used um, present value uh, method, which is pretty close. It's giving you a, a pretty pretty close assessment, right? But essentially, when the interest rates go up, new bonds are issued at those higher interest rates. And now if you want to sell your bond, well, then you have to you have to essentially sell it at a lower price in order to compete. Now, the opposite could be true. What if interest rates declined to 1%? Well, then all of a sudden you're doing great because if you want to sell your bond that pays $2 per share annualized, or $2 per bond annualized per, per $100 face value, you're now competing against bonds that are only paying a dollar in interest payments annualized. So you're gonna get a premium on that bond. So when interest rates decline, your bond now looks better relative to the new bonds being issued. So your bond is gonna trade at a premium. But when interest rates increase, your bond is gonna get worse relative to the, to, to the current bonds. Um, so your bond is gonna trade at a discount. Right. So interest rates, um, rising interest rates are one of the biggest um, risks of, of the bond investor, essentially. Now, you could argue that if you're not going to uh, sell your bond, if you're just going to hold it to maturity, then at the end, you're going to get your $100 back, that this doesn't really matter. What it really does um, represent is the opportunity cost. Right. So if you're holding a bond, a 10 year bond, and then interest rates rise the next year significantly, you know, you're stuck with that low interest rate or you could sell you're bonded a discount. Um, you know, it's not like you're losing money technically, but there's the opportunity cost. If you didn't invest all of your money in that bond, you could have, you know, waited a year and then got 
got bonds at a higher rate. Of course, nobody can, can predict the future. Now, as your bond gets closer to maturity, this becomes less of an issue. So, you know, started at seven years, maybe, maybe your bond, um, maybe it took three years for interest rates to double, right? So, you know, $84 is what it would have been if they, if interest rates doubled right away, your bond price would have declined to $84. But you know, if it was, if it was three years, it would have been less of a decline 80, down to $88. Now, if you're one year away, there's very little interest rate sensitivity, right? Because the biggest income payment that you're going to get is your principal back at the end of the term, right? So if you're only one year away, you have a couple interest payments, you're going to get your $100 back or whatever the face value of the bond is. So a, a short-term bond has very little interest rate sensitivity. However, a long-term bond, like say if this is a 30-year bond, well, that has a major interest rate sensitivity, right? Because it's a long time before you get that principal returned. Um, and then all of those interest payments that you're getting, which is the reason why you own the bond, um, are coming out, are, are, are coming to you at, at points in the future. So when you're discounting that value back to present day, um, it makes a big difference, right? Now, if you, um, if the time to maturity is zero, which basically means that your bond is up, you're going to get your money back, then it's always going to trade at par, right? It's going to trade at $100. doesn't matter what the interest rate is. Um, the interest rate could go up 20%, you know, not saying that it will, but that essentially means that it's time for you to be repaid. So you have no interest rate sensitivity. So the, the point here is that, yes, bonds um, are interest rate sensitive. That sensitivity also depends a lot on the, the time to maturity. So longer term bonds are going to be more sensitive. Shorter term bonds are going to be less sensitive. If it's like a year, a one year bond, there's very, very little sensitivity. Um, um, that, that's, essentially, that's essentially the way that a bond works, right? So a lot of people think of bonds as, you know, very safe investments. Um, and if you, you, if you hold the bond again to maturity, it's not like you're going to lose your principal. You're going to get it back, but there is that opportunity cost. But if you're investing in a bond ETF, um, they have to, you know, they have to own a wide range of bonds. They always have bonds expiring. Then they have to um, reinvest that money. So there is volatility in the in the in the price of a, of an ETF, a bond ETF portfolio. And what I did is I pulled up um, BMO bond ETF ZAG. So this is a very safe um, bond uh, ETF. It invests mostly in Government of Canada bonds, and you can see that it's down almost twelve percent. This was for 2022. So actually more than the stock market. So we think of bonds as being safe investments, but this very safe bond fund um, is actually down more than the stock market. And the reason for this is because interest rates went up so high. So this, this ETF owns bonds that were written years ago when interest rates were really low um, and they have to hold on to those bonds until maturity or sell them at a discount when interest rates go up. So they're essentially in a situation where now they're holding a bunch of low interest rate bonds while new bonds that are being issued um, are being issued at, at higher interest rates, right? So it makes their current bond portfolio look less, um, less attractive, thus the price of those bonds have to go down in order to make the yield go up to, to the market rate. Now, this will reverse if interest rates stay at a high level for a period of time as their bonds expire, they will invest in the higher interest rate bonds. And then if interest rates start going down again, you'll see the opposite effect. The, the value of their bond portfolio it will trade at a premium because their, their, their average rate will be higher than the, than the current market rate. 
Um, but that's essentially how it works. Hopefully that makes sense. So I don't know. I could maybe like throw this little widget um, online or something if, if people wanted to play with it and just see how the bond price changes based on the maturity and the, um, and, and the interest rate. Very cool. Good. Yeah. You know what I would have done there? Actually, I would. Nobody <laughs> just cares. Care. <laughs> I'm Nobody just bugging cares. you. I'm only joking. Excellent job. No, excellent job. Great visualization. Um, you know, I might need that to uh, help me study up for the, the next level CFA here eventually. To get to um, the next level. Yeah. To get to the next level. Um, yeah. No, that yeah, no that, that I'm sure Dave will be happy with that. That's a good good representation and um uh, you know may visually it's, it's it's good to look at it like that so anybody watching on youtube for anybody on the podcast that was completely useless aaron so come on mm -hmm. i'm hitting anyway no, on great. the podcast it looks it looks it'll look great for everyone not yeah. on the youtube show it'll look great for everyone that's what i'm trying to say i don't know what i'm saying it's good well as i said um if anybody is interested if you want me to throw it online so that anybody yeah. can access it and play with it then just throw a couple comments on the youtube channel or you know wherever you access the podcast yeah we can post email us. if there's some interest people want to play around with it i'll uh i'll put it up awesome good okay well let's let's uh that's it for that segment i'm going to look at uh your stock our take segment on Aritzia, symbol is ATZ on the TSX, $42.67, about a $4.7 billion market cap. Clients will know Aritzia well. It's it was recommended to our Canadian growth stock clients in January of 2019 at around $16.80. Since then, in a tough retail market uh, for retail stocks, it's been up uh, 154%. So the company was founded in 1984. It's a long-term growth-oriented, innovative design house and fashion retailer, exclusive brands targeted to women primarily in the ages of 15 to 45. The company is positioned between affordable luxury and fast fashion, and its loyal customer base uh, cites design, the quality of the fabrics, the construction of uh, Aritzia's offerings as key differentiators for the business. They operate over 100 stores across Canada and into the U.S., in addition to a robust established e-commerce platform. Okay, so let's look at recent financials. Uh, the Q3 revenues came in at $624 million. That's up 37%. Adjusted EBITDA at $119.6 million, up 9.5%. And adjusted EPS up to 67 cents per share up from 61 cents, around 9.8% gain there. Uh, our conclusion here on the company, both during and subsequent to the pandemic shutdown, Aritzia consistently and considerably has outperformed most North American retail peers. It saw its share price jump to the mid $50 range at one point before pulling back to its re uh, recent range after the Q3 results. Uh, what we saw in the Q3 results that uh, had the share price pull back, an elevated inventory position, uh, modest lowering of fiscal year 2023 guidance, and the lowering of consensus estimates. That had a negative impact on the share price in the near term. We recently updated it when it was trading in the $48 range, said it was close to fair value and maintained our hold in the near term. We like it long term. Stock's now in the $42.50 range. 
there is a cautionary note as well. I would point out that inventories are, are greater than 500 million right now as at Q3. Uh, that is up 187%, 187% year over year. This was partially due to management strategy to satisfy ongoing demand by uh, increasing order lead times. However, the supply chain has been all gummed up for a company like this. Uh, as these are easing, this led to spring and summer merchandise arriving early as well. So that boosted inventory. The resulting stress on the company's distribution centers caused cost inefficiencies in the quarter that should persist likely into the first half of 2024. That's the company's fiscal 2024, which is just entering as such. And while we continue to expect demand to exceed peer comparables heading into uh, a potential recession, we remain cautious on the stock in the near term. If we look at annual estimates, estimates out there for this year would have the company in its range right now trading about 23.4 times adjusted earnings. Expected growth next year would bring it to the range of Right now, trading at around just under 20 times next year's or fiscal 2024 earnings. Long term, in a tough space, uh, Aritzia is likely or positioned to produce above average top and bottom line growth. Uh, the market is forecasting or analysts are forecasting 15% compound annual growth rate over the next several years, driven by organic expansion and relocation of stores as well as uh, increasing its e-commerce penetration. So over the long term, if you're looking three to five years out, uh, we like this business. In the near term, it's probably been closer, but particularly like we said in the $48 range to fair value. Awesome. Yeah, and there's not many retail stocks that we really love, but uh, there's a few that will stand out that, um, and yeah. one of the things that, you know, obviously we wanna see is a, a strong e-commerce component. Um, but also it's some, I think somewhat of a niche. And I mean, you know, you know, Aritzia a lot more than me, Ryan. Um, but I mean, it's not just, I mean, it's not like, you know, investing in the Bay, right. It's, it's, it would be more of a, a niche retailer. I, maybe that's not the best way to describe it, but special. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. Specialized and, and really, um, you know, focusing on what they do best, right. Mm -hmm. For women's fashion, that 15 to 45 range and, and just, uh, you know, knocking it out of the park very responsive to customers and, you know, carefully expanding over time. There's been a call for them to expand faster and faster and faster, which um, some other Canadian retailers have done that in the U S and got clipped, right? Like that hit really hard because they didn't do it effectively. But I mean, this company has never, they, they put a, they go into a, an area, they put in a store and they've never closed the store. So you're doing that with careful thought and consideration to the market you're going in which is, you know, what you'd like to see rather than, you know, consistently. Like one thing I always look at when I, when I see a retail stock is there's usually a line item that says how many stores we open this year. And then there's always how many stores you close. So you got a net store openings in a year to get, try to get growth. Well, Aritzia basically just has the line where it's net openings, right? Because they're not really closing. So, I mean, it's lovely to follow. It's easier to look at. And, you know, when they, they, when they go into a store, they're maybe refurbishing it or moving it across the street if they'd ever done that, but it's in the same locale, right? So they're not really closing down locations because they're carefully thinking, where do we want to go? Is this going to be profitable? And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a really, a great Canadian success story that's kind of flown under the radar, but 
you know, now it's, I, I do remember back when we originally looked at it, we were looking at it and Canada goose mm -hmm. and Canada goose at the time was trading at significantly higher multiples and basically had uh, a ton of analyst coverage, you know, saying, you know, this is the greatest company ever basically. And the thing was, it was the one product really the park for me that, um, you know, in fashion, if something goes out of fashion, I'm not saying that park has gone out of fashion or any uh, out of style or anything like that, but it can really get hit hard if that turns on you. Whereas Aritzia has several different brands. Uh, they can shift from one brand to the other. And uh, also, the, you know, their valuations when we originally recommended it, very reasonable relative to Canada Goose. Now, Canada Goose has had significant challenges over that period. Aritzia, not so much. Uh, done very well where Canada Goose hasn't. Um, so we're happy we made the call to go with Aritzia over Canada Goose. And the, the balance sheets are, you know, I would say in Aritzia's favor right now, those two as well. And uh, just the, the more consistent growth and the more broad product line from the company that, uh, you know, just does is not as much of a one trick pony. So the other thing is every time I go in there, my wallet gets lighter. So that's just anecdotally, you know, yeah. go into an Aritzia and, and they are busy, which is a good thing to see. So that yeah. to bring it back to Peter Lynch, he likes you to go in and actually you know, touch and feel the investments that you're looking at. And sometimes you can do that. In the case of Aritzia, you can, if, you know, if you're somewhere in Canada, you can likely go into a store and see if you uh, like what's going on in there. And usually they're busy in malls where they're not always busy, which is a good sign. Yeah. I remember so when we were comparing yeah. it to, sorry, if I just could. Yeah. No, 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 no. And my one friend, uh, Ryland, not, who uh, you guys hear me talk about, you know, he was considering buying Canada Goose. And I told him about Aritzia and how, you know, they've never closed the store and whatnot. And, you know, he did end up avoiding it. And I believe that was around, you know, that was in 2021. And we've literally seen the stock get, you know, cut in half, basically, from where it was trading at around $52. Canada Goose. Dollars. Mean, Canada, yeah. Goose. Canada Goose. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, and the thing about Canada Goose, too, very seasonal bi business. You know, um, yeah. I believe their January, whenever they post in January is their biggest quarter. Um, but uh, yeah, very seasonal business. It's nice to have, you know, consistent, uh, you know, business with a, a company like Aritzia. And I know uh, another friend of mine, his sister's fiance, or his fiance's sister, sorry, loves Aritzia. You know, she actually, she's an equity analyst for a PE company in Saskatchewan, but she still keeps her part-time job at Aritzia just so she can get those deals. Um, so, you know, it's definitely, uh, popular among the, the, the women category 15 to what'd you say? 46, 56, 15 to 45, 46. <laughs> you're not allowed to shop in there. Sorry. It's over. Anyways, they won't let you. Yeah. I know it's uh, true. No, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's well run, which is nice to mm -hmm. see. It's, and it's a Canadian success story. It actually started in Vancouver. So. Um, it, it's been a good business for sure. And, and we continue to think in that sector, um, it's not cheap, but it's, uh, you know, for a reason that it, it, it trades at, uh, at good valuations, premium valuations, but it offers a decent price. Now let's, Brett, you're going to talk about our stars, our star and our dog of the week. And you're going to go dog then star because we love to end on a positive note, right? Yeah, we call it star and, and dog, like, no, but we I'm always go dog that. and star. No, <laughs> just, just to make you wrong today, because yes, we yeah. always do this as well. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, but I'll get into the dog of the week first, because we love doing that. The dog of the week is Lyft. Symbol L-Y-F-T on the NASDAQ. 
Lyft is the second largest ride-sharing service provider in the US and Canada, connecting riders and drivers over the Lyft app. Lyft shares just collapsed on Friday the 10th of February from the previous day's close of 1622 to only 10.31, a 36% drop by the end of regular trading hours. And as at the time of recording on Monday, the stock has been relatively flat, plus or minus 1%. So there hasn't been a quick reversal like you see sometimes after this. You'll see it shoot back up 10, 20%. We haven't seen that so far. So really, why did the shares collapse overnight? Well, the company had earnings, where posted revenue growth of 21% to $1.2 billion, the highest in, company, in the company's history, but it still had negative adjusted EBITDA of $248 million. But that was better than what they guided for previously. So far, so good, right? Where's the 36% drop coming from? Well, that's because of the future guidance. Like I said before, the company had $1.2 billion in revenue and has historically been growing quarter over quarter. There's been a couple quarters where it's drifted down, but overall, it's been an upwards trend for the last few years since it's IPO'd. But now it is only guided for $975 million, a substantial fallback, and this has immediately caused effectively all the analyst forecasts to substantially decrease as growth is lower and it is more volatile than has been previously expected, as well as it has a lower now baseline. Ultimately, it lowers effectively every single valuation of all external analysts. I think 16 of the 19 that Yahoo had have lowered in the last week, and I would not be surprised if the other ones just did an update. This is effectively the risk of these companies being realized when you're valuing a company that's purely off revenue growth. And the hope of profitability in the future, if revenue shrinks or just does not grow to expectations, you see these big drops in prices overnight. In summary, guidance is extremely impactful and growth-dependent concept stocks have significant risk embedded in them. And Lyft has finally realized this risk, making it our dog of the week. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have, like you said, I think you summarized it well, premium valuations and then any impact on growth. And then, you know, the stock just gets revised lower and the stock gets killed. And that, I mean, we, we've been hammering on that for years. Like you're priced to perfection. You don't hit perfection. You're going to get slammed. So losing you know, try to have you know, some kind of margin of safety and you don't have negative. That. EBITDA. Yeah. Negative EBITDA. Yeah. Like, you know, so yeah, I know yes. Ryan loves yep. Lyft though, but you know. That's a different story. No, I, I <laughs> my, my Uber app got compromised years ago and I cannot get back on it. So yeah. I have to, when we're out, sometimes I have to use Lyft and it is, it's, you know, in Vegas, Lyft is fine because there's 8 million Lyfts in like California. It's fine. But you know, other cities, it's just, I just want is Lyft it. in Vancouver. I think so. Yeah, I tried once. It was like, yeah, <laughs> your wait is seven, four days. You know? Yeah, and when we're on a trip, it's usually Ryan asking me or Aaron, hey, so can you guys uh, call an Uber? <laughs> That's usually what it, how it ends up. It's true. You know it. You well, know it. <laughs> I, I wish I could use my Uber. Like I, I, they said, one of their fixes was to get rid of the app, like get it out of your uh, app store, completely kill it for two years. And we had this <laughs> pandemic, so I literally killed it for two years came back on and it says uh it's trying to bill me 25 dollars from places i'm not so anyways we, we could get into my Uber anyways issues but let's yeah. not do yeah that. we've heard enough of those over the years <sighs> so all i'm getting out of this is ryan is single-handedly holding up the lift stock 
That's I am. So if, it, if, if Uber ever lets them back in, then they're gone. They're Short, in business. Lift. Short lift. Every city we go to, we're we'll lifting around. We'll find out in a couple of years that actually Ryan's Uber account works fine. He just wants us to pay for the <laughs> it's clients, right? Yeah. I've been trying to prop up Lyft stock for years. Yeah. All right. Now we're going to do our star of the week. And uh, clients should not be uh, uh, unfamiliar with this stock. And you know, most <laughs> people would not be uh I'm familiar with Microsoft Corporation, but it is our star of the week and year, really. It's done quite well. Let's get into our star of the week. That, Like Ryan said, the star of the week is Microsoft, symbol MSFT on the NASDAQ. Microsoft develops and licenses consumer and enterprise software. It is known for its Windows operating system and Office productivity suite, but it also has operations in cloud computing and AI or artificial intelligence. The stock had a rough 2022 but 2023 so far has been quite positive. The stock is up over 13% year-to-date at the intraday price of $272. Microsoft has benefited from the broad recovery in the tech sector, but on a company level, Microsoft has really benefited from the surge of interest in AI, specifically ChatGPT and Dolly. Microsoft has an ongoing partnership with OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT and Dolly, since 2019, and it has recently extended its partnership with a multi-year and multi-billion dollar investment Although Microsoft hasn't gone into specifics, some insider sources have cited a $10 billion investment. And Microsoft finally, finally might get you to Bing it after all these years as they are integrating ChatGPT into Bing. So you might finally Bing something over Googling. First time for everything. As well, it is integrating ChatGPT into Azure services. Additionally, Microsoft has reported its Fiscal Q2 2023 during this period in January, which it was a mixed bag with mixed reactions from the market. The bearish argument was generally weak in short-term growth should lower valuations, but ultimately the stock has pushed past these bearish arguments for the time being, favoring the long-term bullish outlook, which that's generally the case. It's been short-term bear, but long-term bullish is the sentiment I've been seeing. There's hundreds and hundreds of um, articles on it because it's a $2 trillion market cap. In summary, the company has a poor price performance in 2023, but has since high, has had, or sorry, in 2022, I'm still lost on the year, but it's had a great 2023 and has had heightened interest due to AI while weathering the mixed perceptions of earnings. Good, yeah. I mean, 2022 was not a, a great year, but I mean, this was also followed by, you know, three to five years of, of incredible performance. And, and if you look at Microsoft relative to, many other tech stocks that did well in previous years the the decline was i don't know i don't have the decline in front of me what would they have been down like 25 35 percent in something like that i believe yeah. i'll put up that exact number but i mean we uh i mean you know you look at companies like zoom like docusign you know several i mean 25 to 35 percent of the tech sector was not much of a decline at all there there are many companies that were down 80 90 95 percent um large cap tech companies, SaaS companies that were highly touted before, but it's really interesting to see where Microsoft is going to go with, uh, with the chat GPT or the GPT three technology. Um, Cause they say, I'm, I've, I've listened to several interviews with the CEO and, and they're going to integrate it into everything. So all their office products, teams, everything. Um, so that could give them, you know, a very interesting competitive advantage could encourage people to renew products early um, or other people that aren't subscribers to their product to subscribe. And then Bing, I'm on the wait list to try the new Bing. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to see how that's going to turn out. But 
you know, one thing's for sure. Um, the monopoly that OpenAI and Microsoft have on the large language models right now, or the what appears to most people to be a monopoly, is going to be short-lived. Google's coming out with their own service. Um, you know, NVIDIA is working on some really interesting things. There's some open source uh, models coming out that, that are already out. They're not as advanced as the OpenAI models, but um, they're they're going to get better. So it's it's going to be very interesting. I talked about this at the World Outlook. It's going to be a very interesting 2023, 2024, a lot of technology innovation. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I don't know what the world's going to look like in three years. I mean, there's some people saying that this could be the end of, you know, search for information, right? I mean, if you're just looking for, you know, a business, a local business, that's one thing. But in terms of, you know, a lot of people use search to get information on, you know, how to code or, or, you know, statistical information or whatever they're looking for. And um, if these large language models provide it, then, you know, in a, in a conversational format, then who knows, it could change everything, but it's going to be interesting. Okay. I think that wraps everything up. Uh, thank you all for listening and remember to like, subscribe, comment. Um, if there's anything that you want us to cover, um, anything that we did cover that you absolutely hate, make sure that, uh, that you let us know. And uh, as always, profitable investing, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone.